Welcome to another episode of Dead Headspace. Uh, this is our 200th episode. We are celebrating it with our guest host, Tyler Jones. Uh, but before that, let's introduce my friend, Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And our good friend, Tyler Jones. Say hello, Tyler. Hello. We're celebrating the 200th episode with uh author that us three are huge fans of, uh, Dennis Lehane. Say hello, Dennis. Hey, everybody. Um. I thought that we usually ask people what got you into typically horror books or or crime if you're a crime writer. Uh, but with this one, I, I reached out to Don Winslow. We had him on recently, and I, I asked him if he had any questions or comments or questions for you. He had a really interesting one. He said, um, it's funny that I bring it up. He did an interview yesterday. This was a few days ago. In which he said that The Given Day is one of the great American crime novels. Well, do say hi and pass along my regards. And he said uh, he has immense respect for you. And the question is, how has your New England roots affected your work? And he does not, he, he doesn't regard you in that way as like a regional writer. Um, and he just wanted to ex- uh, say that he thinks of you as a great American writer. Oh, thanks, Don. That's great. Um, I feel the same. So that's very nice. Um, I, I I don't know the New England stuff. I think it's more the Boston stuff. Mm. I think I would be a different writer if I was like you know from Vermont. Um, but uh, <laughs> there they were on the main streets of Greensboro. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, Canada. Vermont's <laughs> right there, man. Um, I feel like uh, the Boston of it all, the sense of uh, the sort of tribalism that I grew up in. Um, uh, you know, I, I Boston's a, a, a very concentrated place. It's really small. It's the exact same size as Milwaukee. Um, but within that geography, there's a lot of demographic shifts. There's a lot of shifts in wealth or lack of wealth. There's a lot of shifts in history, in architecture. There's a lot of clear periods that Boston went through that you can study you know, through the architecture, literally just through architecture, like, oh, that was the French period. Oh, that was the whatever. So um, I think that had a big influence. And I, I grew up in a bar culture, and I think that had a big influence too. My dad used to mm-hmm. take me to the bar with him on Saturdays. So um, I grew up, you know, and then Irish culture had a huge influence. My parents were immigrants, and so I grew up hearing a million stories. And I think that mm-hmm. was big, it had a big effect. Brennan, jump in. I, I think the uh, whole notion of the kind of tribalism of Boston is just something that's so apparent in your work. Now, I mean, obviously, people kind of have experienced that, whether it's through uh, the the Kenzie and Gennaro books, or uh, it's certainly present in Small Mercies, uh, which mm-hmm. they will be able to buy the day after they listen to this. Um, but I, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more in depth about that, just kind of how the how that part of Boston culture is different than other major cities. Yeah. I mean, growing up in growing up in Boston, so we're talking about way back. I can't really speak to the way it is now. I know there's vestiges of it, but I, cause I haven't lived in the neighborhoods since I was 20. I mean, well, I have, that's, that's not true. I mean, I've lived in Charleston. I've lived in Brighton. I've lived in Austin cause everybody's lived in Austin. Um, I've lived in Southie. Uh, the it's it's i would say it has certainly been mitigated a lot 
by, by gentrification, by changes in demographics. You know, when the Southie that I write about in 1974, it was still, by the time I was in high school in the early 1980s, was 100% white. Not 99, not 95, 100% white. And if they got a color, people of color in there, usually on Section 8, they were firebombed out. Simple as that. So when you look at the, and Southie wasn't the only one, you know, I, I don't want to just paint the brush. You know, there were parts of Dorchester that were 100% Irish or you need, you better not show your ass there. And um, there were parts of Hyde Park that were like that. I mean, there, but the city was very, and then the city was very kind of tribal and balkanized in, in, in the sense that you could say, Oh, um, if I go to this neighborhood in Revere, it'll be most, it'll be actually be almost all Italian. If I go to the North end, it'll be mostly Italian. If I go over here in Austin, it'll be Brazilian. If I go over here into Roxbury or parts of Dorchester, it will be black or it will be Puerto Rican. If, you know, it was, and it was, it was, they, they were little pockets. It wasn't like anything around them was, the melting pot wasn't melting is the way I put it. And, um, and that changed. That began to really change and ramp up in the 80s. I remember, you know, Charlestown to me seems like the first area that gentrified. Mm. Charlestown, suddenly people were like, it was too close to the city and it was too beautiful for people to sit, not say, I'll risk it. I'm going in. <laughs> and they started buying up Monument Hill and they started buying up all the things on Monument Square and they started buying things up on the training field. And they said, these are beautiful colonial buildings. And there's a bar right down the street where George Washington drank this is a cool neighborhood. And that began a major shift. And Charlestown's only a square mile. So once they ran out of Charlestown, gentrification began to take place all over the city. And that changed the demographics. And so it was less tribal. But when I was a kid, and in particular when I was nine years old, which is the year I write about in this book, mm -hmm. it was as tribal as it got. I um just to speak on that point, and then Tyler, please jump in. Yeah. I used to be a teamster when I still lived in Massachusetts, so uh, quite a while ago, young twenties, and um, I delivered not too often in Boston, but uh, I delivered there sometimes. And uh, we were at a stop in Southie. I forget. I think it was Al's Liquor. They have on the side of the building. There's this huge logo painted by the Dropkick Murphys. It's for one of their albums. And uh, there's, I was just waiting. The truck driver drove off because is before they open up. And this old timer comes up. He, in my head, I'm like, he kind of looks like he could be white. He pulled his brother. Um, sure. Just the way, just the swagger, just the way he talks. I'm not going to repeat the dialogue he said to me, delivered to me. But basically, what he said, and I have no clue why he just. I mean, I'm very much so Irish American, and I think that's written on my face, especially when I uh, when I get pink sunburns. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but he he starts telling me when I was younger, beer costs, I think he said fifty cents, and then he started talking about Section Eight, and I listened to him, but in my head I started getting cringy because some of those guys like they were talking about what you're referencing, and he did not like JFK for Section Eight for for uh, diversifying a lot of things. Um, there's no real question here. I just wanted to throw that out there in case maybe you could spitball something back. If not, we can go to Tyler. Well, one of the things they remember uh, that it was hilarious when they when they busted Whitey Bulger in, in Santa Monica, 
and the people, you know, when I, I was, I was in an Irish bar known for Boston um, sports fans called Sonny mm. McClellan's on Wilshire and 26th in Santa Monica, the night he got busted. It's <laughs> a huge Boston celebration. People write their zip codes everywhere in the bathroom. Everybody <laughs> was talking about Whitey stories and he got busted that night. And w- the next day in the paper, w- they talked to a neighbor and the neighbor said, the only thing that stuck out about this guy, the only thing that I can remember he, we would walk every day down to the pier together. It's the Santa Monica Pier. And he said, and the only thing I can remember about him that really stuck out was how racist he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just so wow. racist. He hated black people. And it was like, yeah, I guess who financed part of the anti-busing movement? Mm-hmm. You know, white Belgian, you know? So um, that's not to say everybody who was against busing was racist. It is to say everybody who was against desegregation was racist, but mm. everybody who was against busing. That was, a, that was, there's a distinction there. It's a different issue, mm. but, but yeah. And that ripped, you know, that, that really ripped the rock off a lot of racism in the city as a whole. I think one place where Southie got the bad rap was because they were ground zero for this. They were tarred as racist first. Whereas if the same thing had happened in parts of Dorchester, if the same thing had happened in Hyde Park first, if the same thing had happened in Charlestown first, that would have been the reaction no matter where it was. Because that's how deep the racism went, particularly in Irish American communities, I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. It's interesting considering, uh, and then Tyler, I really shut the hell up. It's really interesting considering, <laughs> like, I'm third generation in this country, but it's really interesting to think about where we came from. Not, I'm not comparing. I'm throwing this out there in case there's a listener that's going to try to say I compared Irish and black. That's not the case. But it's interesting because of how um, our people were treated when we first got here. And and up until, I don't know, what, this is, what the 60s when JFK went into office? It, it really didn't start shifting until that point. Um well, in Boston, no, Boston. I would say it was shifting by the twenties, and it was uh, it wasn't New York, it wasn't Chicago. They figured out the way in. Okay, the Irish in those cities figured out take the jobs nobody wants, which is mm. the police, the fire department. Mm. You know, um, uh, get in the hospitals, get in the st- get into the get into the low level um, parts of city hall, and work your way up. Mm. So that was an ethos that was going on in Irish American communities in the big cities. And um, but then they were truly legitimized with the election of JFK, as was Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Tyler, go ahead, buddy. Well, first of all, Dennis, I've been a massive fan of your work for decades now. Like, thanks, man. Just a huge, huge fan. And I have to I have to tell you, small mercies. um, I didn't just read this book and I I lived in it, breathed in it, and I staggered out of it three days later. And I'm not just saying this because we're on this podcast together. I've been telling this to everybody. Like I have, I can't remember the last time a book affected me so deeply. Like it put me in a weird funk for days, just, just thinking about life and existence and where we've come as a country and where we're going, like all these complex things that this book brought up. And uh, it's just a really, really powerful book. The question I had for you is the subject matter is obviously fairly incendiary. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great conversation starter. For example, I was talking about it uh, with my mom. And she grew up in, she was living in Florida at the time that desegregation happened there. So she had her own versions of these events and stories. Um, 
Is this a book that you think you could have written 10 years ago? Maybe. Uh, if I had gotten the through line, when mm. I, was, I was always looking to tell the story of busing. So what brought me to L.A. Um, was a television show pitch based on a story that was set there in busing, the run-up to busing. So it started in 73. Okay. And, and that was a big, broad conspiracy thriller with a huge cast of characters. And that didn't work. And I thought about turning it into a book. My agents several times said, would you do that as a book? And I was like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And, but I had constantly said in my head, I got to tell the story of Boston because the story of Boston is Boston. And I mm. really wanted to, you know, it's the story of Boston. And so I, I was just kind of in search of a story. I knew my backdrop. I didn't have my story. Mm. And then all of a sudden this story came to me and I saw this woman in my head and I first envisioned her just for a second, like she was in a roller derby stance. That's <laughs> And I was like thinking of these women that I knew growing up. I had a friend. We, we grew up in Dorchester, just south of the South Boston line, right? Dorchester was considered a pretty tough place, but we knew what real tough was. <laughs> and it wasn't us, right? And one of my friends got the shit kicked out of him by three girls on a subway platform. Three <laughs> South Boston girls. Girls. And there was no shame to it. None. We were all just like, yeah, I would have run. You know what I mean? <laughs> Those girls were tough, man. They were tough and they were raised by tough women and tough men. Mm -hmm. And they were raised in poverty, particularly the project kids. Yeah. So they had these really tough lives and they were raised by really tough people who had had really tough lives and on and on and on. It's generational. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking about the women who I knew like this and I knew several and I thought, what if, what if you set that woman loose with nothing left to lose in the summer of 74? What would that look like? And that was it. I finally got it. That was got, the start. Got my through line. And I had this image of her speaking to like a 19-year-old boy and he gave her back talk and she beat the shit out of him. <laughs> and I thought, that's, I'm, that's where I'm going. And that was, I was off to the races right from there. That was my, I think I capital chapter six in the book. Mm -hmm. But, um, and, I, and it's very important to note how she beats this kid up. She just, she keeps punching. She never stops. And she gets pulled off. She realizes her legs are free. So she gets in like three boots to the face of this kid. And I was like, that's who this person is. It's not like, it's not about... It's not about the size of the dog in the fight. It's the fight in the dog. And mm -hmm. she's got a ton of fight in her. And, mm -hmm. and she then accepts, I think about halfway through the novel, she knows the likelihood of her survivor survival is very minimal. She mm -hmm. knows that. She gets it in her head. And she's like, fine. I'm going all the way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of like I accepted my death. You better accept yours. <laughs> here I come. <laughs> And, and to set that against the backdrop of that really ferocious summer, and that's how I think of that summer. It was, it was ferocious in every way. It was hot. It was loud. It was violent. It was angry. It was filled with screaming. It was filled with some of the worst graffiti I've ever seen in my life. If anybody ever tries to tell you that wasn't how it was, pick up a book called Dorchester Days by Eugene Richards. It's a photo essay. 
And in the middle of that is the South Boston section, even though it's mostly shot in my neighborhood of Dorchester. And and look at some of the graffiti you see and then tell me that that wasn't going on because it was. And I wanted to finally make sense of that summer because it was, I feel like it was kind of the last summer I ever had of being kind of like a kid. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Tyler, you got a follow-up? Yeah, I was, I was thinking Tyler, it's, it's, um, it's a brave book. It's it's courageous in the sense that you don't hold anything back. Was that a consideration at all? Or like, did you just go all in on this story, wherever it le led, wherever it would go, that's where you were going. That, that's where I was going. Yeah. You know, I said from the very beginning, Mary Pat is a racist. Is mm -hmm. she as racist as some of the other people in the book? No. But is she as non-racist as she thinks she is when the book starts? No. <laughs> and, I, and it's really about her journey to understand racism. Nobody's born racist. It's simple. I'm sorry. It's just, it's amazing that you have to keep repeating that this late in the world. Mm. Um, you don't find too many four-year-old racists. Just doesn't happen. Um, and so racism is taught. Racism is taught and it is handed down. It is handed down like genetic deformity or a virus, whatever you want to call it. But it is handed down. And Mary Pat's journey is to understand her culpability in that. That's mm -hmm. really the story that she got. That's her story here is, is did I inadvertently contribute to the violence that has robbed her of everybody she loves? You know, her husband has left her before the book starts. And the, his reason is because of your hate. And she doesn't understand it. She doesn't get mm -hmm. it. She's like, what do I hate? I'm just going along, you know? Mm -hmm. And and then each of the other people who she loses throughout the course of her life, if you do the long connection, it's it's they were all hung, they were all stuck in the same rage. They were all stuck in the same self-destructive victimization. They were all stuck in racism. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's kind of the journey she goes on. And no, I don't want to pull any punches. I, um, I, I felt my my editor worked with me repeatedly to dial back anything that could have been misconceived as coming from the narrator's voice. Mm -hmm. I was okay with that. I was like, yeah, mm -hmm. we don't want that out there. So I'll. And he convinced me to cut this one passage that was kind of an homage to the scene in Do the Right Thing where each of the guys stands and looks at the camera mm -hmm. and, and rags about the racial characteristics of another. Yeah. And my editor was like, I think we should lose that. And I gave it a lot of thought. I said, what do I lose if I lose it? I'm okay with it. Okay, I gave it a mm -hmm. lot of thought and I took that up. Okay, um, but beyond that, there were times when he would say to me, I really think this is a moment for an epiphany for her. A revelation she can understand here and i'm like no she can't she's 44 years old she grew up in the projects she's been shoveled this stuff since she was four or five so that's 39 years of racism being shoved down your throat she's not gonna travel a thousand miles in a week mm -hmm. psychologically speaking she's gonna travel a couple of hundred yards and that's good enough <laughs> that's good enough that gives us hope so that when yeah. she gives the 
the, she has a model. I think of it as a model. She has a monologue in the end from a phone booth in Charlestown and she calls somebody and she starts talking about what it was to be sold racism as a child and then to turn around and sell that same racism to your children. And that I think is as far as she can get mm -hmm. understanding, you know, what her, what her culpability is in all of this. And there's an authenticity to that. Um, it's, you know, and I, and I, and I say this extremely sparingly, I'm so sorry if it offends, but like, there's almost like the overall story has this almost kind of like badass Liam Neeson from Taken vibe, but it's not that at all because this woman is an absolute product of her environment. There is no false uh, narrative. There is no fakeness to the, the, the motives, to the actions, to any of the end results um every single thing has its place and you mentioned uh you know her husband that's left her and ken fen is such an interesting character and i think that he's got maybe like six pages total of yeah. time mm -hmm. but yet he's so three-dimensional and well-developed and i wonder if you could speak a little bit and that's a, that's a theme that people will notice in all of your novels is that you can breathe so much life into characters so quickly, even if they are just supporting characters, they feel like people you know, and you can understand where they come from. And I wonder if you have any tips, tricks, or anything like that to giving every character a purpose, not just the main ones. Well, you know, your flat characters, those are called flat characters too. You, you, you paint them in brushstrokes, but you try to make your brushstrokes as good as you can. And, um, and Ken Fenn, the line I got where I understood Ken Fenn was, you know, she describes him as, you know, he's huge. And he grew up in the D Street Projects, which is a really, really rough housing project. And, and he's, um, he's got, a, what, I wish I could remember the metaphor. She describes his hands as, as like anvils or something. I can't remember, but they're huge. Everything about him is huge. And she says, and if you, and if you picked a fight with him, um, you better bring at least three of you because he wouldn't stop until a coroner called it that. And I love that. And then she says, but if you didn't pick a fight with him, he would never start one. And I was mm -hmm. like, now I got this guy. Now I know who this guy is. He'd much rather talk to you. He'd much rather hang out with you. So his nature is, she says he had no, he had no choice growing up in the D street projects. He had no choice, but to embrace the violence. He just never embraced the hate. And that's a clear distinction. Mm -hmm. And later on, she compares a very despicable guy to somebody who embodies embodies the hate without the anger, which is, I think, a very is a very despicable type of human being. That's a sociopath, somebody who can hate on people but feels no anger. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the trick to writing people like that is love. I mean, I love almost all my characters. I really do. I don't judge them. I don't ever say, oh, because you do this bad thing, you must be a bad person. Um, there's a line in one of my books, I think it's Given Dead, actually, where a character says, you see the worst and the best of people and the best and the worst of people. And, and actually, it's inverted. He says, you see the best and the worst of people and the worst and the best of people. And that's, that's me to my core. Hmm. If you tell me, oh, put that person up on an altar, I'll be, I'm so Irish. I'll be like, do it, please. You know, I don't care who it is. I don't care if they just saved the world. I'll be like, yeah, but he probably beats his kids. You know what I mean? <laughs> something. something. 
And if you say to somebody, you know, oh, that person is a whatever, you know, unless it's serial killer, child molester, rapist, I'm going to say, hey, he's probably just as full of it as the rest of us. You know, we're all idiots. We're all idiots and we're all trying to trying to get to shore in the same stupid boat and we're never going to make it. <laughs> but um, and so I think when I write characters, that's for me, the key is do not ever judge them. Don't tell yourself your bad guy is your bad guy. It, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't work that way. And most times, I, obviously, I've created a pretty group of bad, bad dudes in this book. Mm-hmm. They're pretty reprehensible. It's maybe one of my more reprehensible groups of bad guys when you get finally <laughs> into the heart of the Butler gang um, and to all their crimes. But even they, even they love their kids. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. even they try to do nice things for their wives. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's like, you know, are they, are they awful human beings? Yeah, they are. But um, put them in a different circumstance. And I think all of them, with the exception of Marty and Frankie, could be different people. Mm. I think Marty and Frankie are the stone cold killers in this book. You know, mm. they, you know, so. But I wonder to a degree, would you say that like Marty does terrible things and knows he does terrible things, but ultimately believes that it's that the ends justify the means that it's for the good of the community. Yeah. So what's the, okay, look, look at it this way. What's the difference between say a feudal King in 13th century England and a gang boss in 21st century (laughs) America or 20th century. What's the difference? The difference is one has the imprimatur of the state and the other doesn't. That's the only one I see. I don't see a moral difference. You know, they're both trying to amass wealth. They both know that the best way to keep their people loving them is to provide for them. So they provide, not because they're nice guys, but they want to stave off a revolution. And and they do do good things. They're known to, you know, I mean, mobsters and gangsters are known to deliver turkeys on Thanksgiving to their poor, you know, the poor people in their community. I mean, they're known to do shit like that. Mm-hmm. So does that make them evil? I mean... Does it make them good? No. Does it make them evil? I think with few exceptions, most people aren't terribly evil. I mean, there, there are exceptions. Stalin, evil, no question. But, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are just, all they want to do is what's best for them to get through the day. I um I want to pull back from the book real quick. And yeah. I'm really curious, Dennis, because me and Brennan, we he still lives in Massachusetts. Um, we're both from the South shore. I grew up in born in Brockton, raised in Bridgewater. I'm very familiar with Walpole. Nice. nice. Yeah, my, my, I want to throw this story in. Cause I feel like you would find it interesting. My dad is, um, he, he's, he's in Florida now. I never thought that would be a thing, but he's a Walpole guy. He used to cook for the Pats back in the eighties and he instilled all, I don't know how I don't have his accent, but um, long story short, he told me an interesting story because we were talking about Whitey Bulger and you and Don Winslow are two of the very few crime writers we've talked to that are from this area or, or that area rather. Um, but he had a story just like all his friends and his was that he went to a party when he was a little bit younger. Um, I don't know if he was a teenager or whatever, but he ended up uh, at Steve Fleming's house because of this kid that he knew and 
and he got the hell out of there. But all, all I was thinking about was like, I, I've read stories about that guy. I, I mean, if you spill his vase and it cracks, like this is Whitey Boulder's hitman. This is a this is a dude that was overseas. And what the, was it? This is the biggest of them. Yeah, Stevie. He, Kevin he, Wiggins, too. Yeah. yeah, Kevin. I don't know which one's more terrifying. Um, but the, I just want to throw that anecdote out there. Uh, my question is, um, being a guy from, you know, a blue collar background, your parents are from, uh, not even from America. Did yeah. I'm trying not to word this like a rookie interviewer, but I don't know how it's asked because when I grew up, all I want to do is write and entertain. So I do the podcast yeah. and I write and, and until social media, I never really thought that I would leave Bridgewater. I just thought that I would be some like townie forever. So sure. I met a South Jersey girl. But um, my question is, is do you still feel like you have a chip on your shoulder? Because I feel like it, this is a this is this is something I'll, I'll never know until it happens. But I feel like even if I made it in your position, I'd still feel like I had a chip on my shoulder because I'm very much so from the same cut from the same cloth as you, like the whole Irish American thing, the Catholic thing. Like you always feeling like you're guilty. You always feeling like you got to prove yourself. You still feel like that. Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't believe in too many of the um, new agey psychiatric uh, concepts, but the one I do believe in very strongly is the inner child. And I, and I do think the inner child never leaves you. And and whoever you were when you were being formed and all your first pains were being experienced, that kid's still in there. Hmm. That's the kid who usually comes out to fight, whether that fight be a physical fight, which hopefully we're all past, or it be uh, an argument with your wife, or it be hmm. an argument with your kids sometimes, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so I... I, I feel like, I don't know if I have so much of a chip on my shoulder as I used to. I know sometimes, yeah, sometimes I, I'm looking back because I can see moments. I, what I do have is not so much a chip about personal issues, but I will always have a, I will always have class rage. Oh, I, yeah, sure. Beneath the surface. Mm. So, um, Dennis, that reminds me, I saw you on tour here in Portland when you were promoting World Gone By. And yeah. you told this story. Somebody asked you it about, you, you weren't living in Boston anymore, but yeah. they still asked if it influenced you. And you told a story about how some guy cut you off in a Range Rover. Oh, yeah. God. And you're like, of course this asshole's driving a Range Rover. <laughs> I think it was your wife who was like, what are you driving right now? A Range Rover. You, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it right there. I mean, that's some messed up class rage, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But I, say, no matter what I it's so funny. I drive my favorite car of all my cars I've, I've held on. I mean, I don't have a billion, billion cars. I just go through cars fast. I would trade them in every couple of years. But a car I've had now for 12 years is just a basic $28,000 Jeep Wrangler, which mm -hmm. is probably not worth like 10. And, um, and I do notice one thing. When I drive that Wrangler, people treat me really well. Way better than they do when I drive. Yeah. Way better. People are like, sure, come on in. Yeah. Let me into traffic. They let me, you know what I mean? Yeah. You come around and you're out and people are like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> One of us. <laughs> I, um, there's different rule. Uh, so I'm in South Jersey now. I've been here since 2015. <laughs> and uh, there's different, 
there are different mindsets, man. Like my wife, I'm not an angry guy. Like this is who I am. But behind the wheel, like I'm not trying to kill anyone, but I'm a lot more, I was a lot more aggressive than South Jersey people. And when she used to drive up through Connecticut or or, or like uh, Massachusetts, she, it was interesting seeing someone from a different world come into specifically Massachusetts. Cause even in, the, yeah, it's, it's warfare, man. Even yeah. in the Cape, man, even in the fucking Cape where it's beautiful. <laughs> oh yeah. No, no. Cause you got to deal with those bridges. Sooner or later, you know, you come to those damn bridges. Born it's bridges take the you, worst. Like, oh my God. Like, so I'm sorry. I get in the worst mood going out of the Cape. My parents moved to the Cape and they used to say, um, they had a house in the Cape and a house in Florida. This is many years ago, but they, used to, <laughs> everybody in the family pointed out the fact that, I would see them more in Florida than I would see them in the Cape. I'm like, I'm not doing that commute. <laughs> I'll get on a plane. I'll fly to Tampa. I'm not driving. It yeah. absolutely yeah. sucks. Yeah. My, um, <laughs> Brandon, go ahead, buddy. All right. Uh, I'm going to steer us in a different direction. Um, sure. So I, I guess I have, I, I have two questions. So the first one is I wonder the, the world at large, generally looks at you as a mystery slash crime writer. And I wonder, you know, with Don Winslow saying, no, Dennis Lehane is not the, you know, a great American crime writer. Dennis Lehane is a great American writer. How do you see yourself? You know, it, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It's um, wherever anybody wants to box you in, if it helps, if it helps sell books, helps the marketing team, I'm fine. I don't care. Like, do, do I know, do I, am I aware of a, of, of having a, of having books that maybe resonate way past where some people think? Yes. And I get that back from readers. I get that back from, I get that back occasionally from critics. I get that back from, you know, I do get this book has had a, serious reaction from people mm. like like in a way like it's like oh wow people are really getting this people are really mm. understanding this book okay that's interesting um but at the end of the day the assessment's going to be an entire career and now that i've broken out into television and show running and all of that that's just one more step mm. um and all I, all I ever wanted was a varied career that was what was most important to me. I wanted the freedom. Once I stepped out of the Kenzie Gennaro books, and that was 1999, so that's been 23, 24 years now. Once I stepped out of that, I said, I want my career to just be unlike anybody else's. That's it. That's what I want. And I'm the bastard child of literary influences. So, um, and I'm a working class guy who then spent years in academia. So it's, there's a lot of paradoxes and mm -hmm. I like that paradox in my work as well. And at the end of the day, I was talking to a buddy of mine, Michael Carita about 10 years ago about this. And I said, um, feels weird because the, the fact is, is I know that if I branded myself and started pump, putting out a book a year, that my heirs would be much happier with me than they are now. You know, um, there'd be a lot more to leave, let's just say. And I said, to, I was talking to my buddy, Michael Greener, and I just said, is it, is it, did I make a mistake? Did I, you know, I mean, I carved out this thing and nobody seems to know what type of writer I am. And nobody seems, I have no brand. 
And Mike, Mike said, you're the brand. He's like, you're what we've been chasing. You're what a lot of people chase, man. Everybody wants mm -hmm. your career. You get to go. You get to go left when everybody else is going right. You get to just write a historical because you feel like it. You get mm -hmm. to take five years off. You get to, you get to do this because you've already set that in motion. And you accept that you're not going to make the kind of mega mansion money. You know what I mean? That's out there. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a great friggin' way to live. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, my father worked at Sears and Roebuck for 35 years. I'm pretty sure the bloom came off that rose around week two. <laughs> and, and yet he still had to do the job to put food on the table. They paid me to make shit up. <laughs> that's what I get paid for. That's, and yeah, it's that's a great. great, great, great job. <laughs> and I'm very blessed to have it. And I keep expanding. I keep going into, you know, TV. I write a movie here and there. I'm, I'm, I just got a hell of a job that I can't speak about to write a movie in. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is my life. You know, this is my life. This is great. Um, it's funny. George Pelicanos, uh, is a buddy of mine, has the exact same attitude. And he's the son of immigrants as well. Yeah. And I wonder if there's something to it that we're first generation. And we're like, our parents were really clear. If you just go to community college, we'll be happy. <laughs> like, pull that one out for us. You know, <laughs> like, you know so... You get a good paying job. You actually own a home. That'd be something great, you know. And I'm like, so it's, it's, it's been. Um, I feel very happy, very blessed. I still feel like a little kid every time I go to work. That's excellent. Yeah. You also, um, I, I had a follow up question, and yeah. your answer couldn't have set it up any better. So, I mean, you got your foot in the door with the Kenzie and Gennaro books, which you know are are that kind of crime. Uh, bordering on mystery. And when we had Joe Lansdale on, he said something that really stuck with me. And this was like a year, year and a half ago. He said that uh, mystery writers are absolute experts on crafting plots, that everybody should write a mystery just to figure out how the hell to keep track of a plot and, you know, make it move at a certain pace and just make every detail count. And I wonder if you feel like the beginning of your writing career really helps you uh, tell stories that don't necessarily fit into that box anymore. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I started, when I started, I was teaching myself how to write a novel. I, I didn't really know. Uh, I, I wrote my first one and that was a fluke. And I was like, oh, but, but now I got to actually do it again. That's the <laughs> hard. You know, you put a monkey in a room with a typewriter. Sooner or later, he might walk out with a book once but you try and tell him to do a follow-up he, he's just going to go in there and throw shit at the walls right? <laughs> That's it. and and i i feel like I, I never said that line before i should remember that that's a good one um <laughs> and, uh, and i think um once you once you pull off a second one that's when you get confidence and it was the second one i remember which was a really chaotic novel it was all over the place i ended up cutting two page, 100 pages from it um that novel was like, okay, now I think I think I'm starting to understand what I'm doing here. Yeah. And then each subsequent book, I would try something that I hadn't tried before. Each book, I would set a new goal for myself, and 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 that ultimately led to Mister Burger, I think, which was the book mm -hmm. I'd been to write for ten years in the back. It had been in my lizard brain for about ten years by the time mm -hmm. I wrote it, and um, and then. And then I immediately tried something else with Shutter Island. And then I immediately tried something else. And 
I find that's the only way to stay interesting, man. If I wanted to do the exact same thing year in, year out, I would have, I'd be a stockbroker or something, you know, but um, I'm an idiot when it comes to math. So that probably wouldn't have worked out well, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I would have been, I would have had a regular job. I don't want a regular job at all. Never did. So. I want to talk about Shutter Island if Brennan's done with that. Okay, sure. Yeah, so that is no bullshit. That's one of my favorite books. It's a great movie. Um, it was actually, I don't know how much, but some of it was shot in, uh, for those not familiar with Massachusetts towns, uh, Taunton, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. literally one or street, two, one or two streets over from where one of my friends lived. Uh, they shot part of Shutter Island. Um, what I personally loved about it is that you just don't know. It's the, uncertainty of it all uh you got horror you got mystery you got uh history uh it's a lot of stuff that i personally am drawn to um did that take a while to come up with i don't know if you outline we don't have to dive deep in that you don't outline i don't normally know i outline tv interestingly enough i outline my tv and my movies but i do not outline books but shutter Mm -hmm. island had a one-page outline uh, both sides, uh, so two page, I guess technically, with one sheet of paper, and it came. This is just—I'm sorry, I hate telling the story because it sounds like such horseshit. It all came to me in a kind of a dream that happened. I was under a ton of stress one night, and my mother had been hospitalized, and I found out too late to call anybody without waking them up. And and there was another, and somebody very close to me was was dying at the time, and it was just a lot of shit going on. And I fell asleep in a in a lazy boy, um, and suddenly, in about three o'clock in the morning, I woke up and I walked on over and I grabbed a piece of paper, and I wrote a ton of stuff down on it. And then I went and I fell back asleep until my phone rang at six with my sister telling me what was going on with my mom. And I'm standing there talking to my sister, and I looked down and I, I could see this paper on the bar, and I was like, "Damn, what about that?" <laughs> and everything in turn like the major plot points were there the year was there and all the anagrams were there which to me the really the weirdest part of it because i'm not smart enough to think up anagrams but that's not where my brain works and so to come up with all the anagrams that were in that book all those clues um <laughs> that was weird so that was it i had that outline and i said I'm gonna. I'm just gonna follow this. You're just gonna. And I knew. I knew the ending. I knew everything. And I, um, because I knew the ending, I I had to write it as fast as humanly possible because normally I don't know that much about a book. And sure. and I get bored if I know too much. So I just blasted it. I just I wrote it. That happened in the summer. That was the summer of two thousand and one. 2002. It was the summer of 2002. And I just, I just slammed it. I just didn't stop. And I finished it on Christmas Day, 2002. And so it was probably a four month, five month writing process. You know, is that, is that quick for you? Yeah, it's super quick. That's yeah. Super, um, I watched the movie before I read the book and even knowing what happens, it, 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 it crushed me, man. 
Whether, <laughs> I know I know this is the one thing you'll never answer. I'm not asking the question about is it real, is it not, but but whether it is or isn't, that's not the point. To me as a reader, like I, I got a three year old, I got a my wife's five months pregnant, so I got another boy on the way. And that's like it. thanks, man. Um I bring that up because uh your life change like we're all fathers, your life changes completely. And you don't get it until you have a kid, but I don't know about you guys, but for me, like I'm not helicoptering parenting my kids or whatever in the sense where I'm paranoid about everything. Like I, I have fun with them, but I'm always thinking about it. I, I put that in my writing, but to read to read what this guy goes through, whether it's real or not, it's real to him. And, and that's the scary shit. Cause I think a lot of us think about like the work, probably all of us think about worst case scenarios. I'm wondering um, after this question, Tyler, jump in. I'm wondering if uh, if there's anything close to what your fears for you as a father was put into this book. Shutter Island? Yeah. Shutter Island, no. Small Mercies, yes. Okay. Yeah, Small Mercies is very much about parenting. And, mm-hmm. and it's about all that you live in fear of. Even as simple as there's a scene very late in the book where where Bobby, the the second the, the co-star of the book, if you will, the second most important mm-hmm. character of the book, police officer, Bobby Coyne's son gets in a, a, a minor accident where he breaks his leg. And there's a meditation on parenting in there. Parenthood, mm-hmm. what it is to be a parent, how it is to live in fear, how it is to hold. You can't, you go insane if every day you woke up and said to yourself, I control nothing. You'd go insane, I think. So you have to tell yourself you have some sort of control over what happens to your children. But we all know it's a lie. You know, mm. it's just a lie. And so it's it's living with the constant fear of, I think the old cliche is true, which is, you know, your heart is outside your body and it's walking around. And that's mm. what you live with. And, and you can't protect it. Not if the world, as the book says, not if the world comes to take its bite. Um. So that's a, you know, I think as parents and if we're all fathers, I think we all know the horror of having those nightmarish dreams that you have as a parent. You wake up and you like, and you just had a dream in which your kid got hit by a car, you know, right in front of you. Like those, those things happen. Like it's just terrifying, terrifying. There is, parenting is not for whips. Let me just put it that way. It's not for whips. And, um, and then I think there was also that, that, the journey that Mary Pat goes through in Small Mercies is a journey of, of realizing, you know, that that you do so much, you, you screw your kids up. You don't know you're doing it. You mm-hmm. just don't know. But you're carrying your crap into a relationship with your kid. You're carrying stuff that you don't even understand about yourself into a relationship with a kid. And it wasn't until I, I find two very interesting things about parenting in terms of your own childhood. As you're a parent, there's so many moments where you look at your kid or you look at your parenting with your kid and you forgive your parents for something. Mm-hmm. You go, now I understand why you yep. snapped. Yep. Now I understand yeah. why you got so mad. But then there are these moments, and these are, I think, the most troubling of all, I feel, when you do the exact same thing and you don't forgive your parents. Because you see yourself through a four-year-old. You see yourself through an eight-year-old. And you go, no, 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 no. You don't get off the hook for that. Yeah. You did that to me when I was eight? When I was that age? Are you crazy? You know, so there's some of that. 
And I think that, again, bringing it all back to small mercies, I was nine and my daughter was, I was nine when uh, that summer 74. My daughter was nine when I wrote it. My daughter has a personality and a nature very much like me. It's my youngest daughter. And the oldest daughter is much like her mom. The youngest daughter is like, like me. And I would look at my daughter and say, what if she had been exposed to watching adults throw rocks at buses with kids on them. Jesus Christ. Yeah, what that's if terrible. she had been walking down a street and seeing the words KKK spray painted on a wall in Boston? What if she had seen what I saw, which was graffiti that said, kill all inwards? Kill all inwards. You're nine. Easy. And I thought, what would that do to her? And Because she's not, she's a sweet kid. And I thought, that's what you're pissed off about, Dennis, me. That's what you've been so angry about, which is I was that kid. And I wasn't some tough kid from Dorchester at nine. I was just a kid at nine. You know, the tough stuff you build later. You know, mm -hmm. you, you, you put that on like a jacket. It's still BS, you know. Um, but at nine, I was just this very impressionable little kid who wanted the best in the world. And suddenly I'm watching all my neighbors, my relatives, dropping the N-word left and right, talking about how enraged they are, talking about how these people aren't the same as us. And, you know, just, and you're like, do you see that through the eyes of your nine-year-old that suddenly you're far less forgiving? Yeah. You know? And, yeah. and that's the way I was. I was like, y'all were completely wrong. I'm not talking, again, I'm not talking about the people who were civilly disobedient against busing because the thing about busing not desegregation. The thing about busing was that it was the solution to the problem and the problem had to be addressed and it had to be addressed right then and there. There is no question. Justice had been delayed too long. Absolutely. But, but then the solution they came up with, A, busing was not necessarily the best idea, but then B, two months before Garrity's decision in um, Morgan versus Hennigan, the thing that led to busing, two months before that, the suburbs pulled out. All the rich suburbs pulled out. So it was left only to the poor neighborhoods in the inner city. Now, if this had been a countywide experiment or even a two-county experiment, Suffolk and Middlesex, let's say, and maybe Norfolk, show them all in there. I think it would have been the single greatest movement forward for desegregation, for equality in education in the history of the country. I believe that. And I think it would have worked. But because they left only the poor holding the bag, the poor had one more way to say, once again, people making decisions that we had no vote in. And mm. could take that and use it to justify all sorts of horrible things. And 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 that was um that was a, a hell a hellish kind of landscape to grow up uh from seventy four to seventy six was when it really seventy six was when it started to temper down a little bit. And um and to be a kid who just didn't get it was very strange and that and that comes into that comes into my parenting all the time now is looking at my kids and saying you know what do they need that doesn't come from my my what do they need here can you see them can you hear them as opposed to just projecting my own bs on them which i'm going to do no matter what guarantee you know it's the only guarantee you're going to screw up your parents i mean bobby says to mary pat in the book parenting is failure yeah. you know it is. You fail all the time. Every now and then you get one right. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> but 
But so mm -hmm. many times you're like, oh man, you know, the kid leaves the room and you go, well, why didn't I have the words that I needed there? You know, yeah. that's such a common part of parenting. Like, mm -hmm. you know, so. I would jump in. You look like you got something good. That was someone told me once an old man that you spend 18 years doing the best you can to raise your kids for them to spend the next 20 years in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, yeah, yeah. I just, uh, I do go by a, a, I do go by a simple rule, which gets, I am definitely, I have girls. So if you're a father and you were raised tough, you're going to spoil girls. I spoil my girls. I'm straight up about it. I, I'll just be like, I don't mind if you're spoiled. I just don't want you to be bitches. Like, just realize that you're spoiled. I'll say it to them all the time. Like, oh, you're spoiled. Thank you. Um, and I, uh, I feel that the two most important things as a father that I can give my girls is that they feel safe and that they feel loved. And it's literally that simple. And I'll build out everything else. But those are my two poles. You've got to feel that. And then don't go out with bad guys. Like that's my prayer. It's my prayer. Yeah. Hopefully they see how their dad is an example of a man, you know? I hope so. I hope so. But then they could see me and be like, yeah, he's boring. And whatever. Or, he's old. They love to tell me good. <laughs> they love to tell me how old they so. Tyler, let's go with you with the uh, with the question we talked about. Brennan, you do one. I'll do my last one, and then we'll uh, leave. That's that a lot of directions. Just throw it to Tyler. Tyler, <laughs> you, then me. How about that, buddy? Yeah, so, so amount of directions. Dennis, you you brought up um, screenwriting, and I was in show running as well. So you've really been doing a lot lately. Um, I'm curious, how do you balance all of that with novel writing? And I'm, so I'm curious what your process is for the screenwriting, show writing. Do you do you write novels within that? I, I, I couldn't write for four years. I couldn't write novels for four years. I could write scripts, no problem. But I just couldn't couldn't write novels. I tried. I kept trying. And hmm. it just wouldn't come out. And that was during the peace and prosperity. I mean, you know, the, the peaceful situation. Then I went to run a TV show in New Orleans. And it was boiling hot and there was lightning strikes every day and there was COVID outbreaks all the time, left and right. We got hit with a hurricane. I'm going to say once again, how ungodly hot it was. Uh, we had a million skirmishes because all television shows and all movies are, are a form of war. It's you know, about bloodshed, but they're war. And, um, uh, and somehow in the midst of all of that craziness, and it was crazy. Um, I sought refuge and I sought refuge in writing a book. It was mm. so weird. And it just flowed right out of me. So peaceful times, nothing. Absolute chaos, wrote. Which <laughs> I think is connected to why a lot of people become writers in the first place. Yeah. I think you become a writer to escape, and I think you become a writer to make order out of your out of your chaos. The mm. world is chaotic. As a kid, you control none of it. How do you control it? You start telling stories. You start creating stories. Now all of a sudden you control it beginning in the middle and an end. Um, otherwise, though, how do I balance it? I don't think I do yet. I don't know that I do. I mean, it was six years between my novels. So clearly I'm having a lot of fun being a showrunner. I don't like being alone. Mm -hmm. I was alone for 20-something years writing books. I didn't enjoy any of it. 
be honest. I mean, I, I enjoy finished product, but I hate being alone. So now I'm in this business where I'm dealing with 200 to 250 people on any given day making a TV show. I get to go all over the place. I get to, I get to, we do a lot of partying, to be honest with you. <laughs> no, it's a long day. You work hard, you play hard. And um, I love it. I absolutely love it. So is, that, is it something you thought you would love before you did nope. it? Nope. No. I was scared of it because I'm not yeah. a micromanager. I don't have a micromanaging bone in my body. And <laughs> so I thought, how am I going to run shows? I mean, you hear all these stories about the great directors and the great showrunners. They're always micromanagers, always. You know, I'm like, that's not me, man. So I just said, I'm going to go and I'm going to hire the best people I can find who have total team player ethos. Mm -hmm. have to have that. And then I'm going to trust them to do their job. And I did. And they loved it. They're like, you're awesome. And you're like, you're great. And I'd be like, yeah, certain things I need to see. But like, I'll give you an example. Prop guy would call me and say, hey, we need to have um, a gut for this scene. You know, um, which one do you want? And give me a bunch of names. I'd give him one. You're like, that's it? I'm like, yeah. Oh, okay. And they'd say, well, what about for the bicycle? What kind of bicycle do you want it to be? You know, and I, and I said, well, I don't know. Show me some pictures and show me a bunch of pictures. And I'd be like, I'll take number two. And he'd be like, that's it? I'm like, yeah, that's it. Check with the director if he's got any issues with it. Check with the DP if she's got any issues with it because of the color. Mm. But if they don't, we're good. Moving on. And they'd be like, damn. Because I'm like, you you chose it. You you are the prop master. Yeah. You mastered the prop. Thank you. Moving on. <laughs> So that was the most surprising thing to me was A, that I was comfortable doing that and B, that it really worked. It mm -hmm. really worked on Blackbird. And, um, and so that's how I'm going to treat the next one. Did you Is the get next a one something you can talk about? The next one I can talk generally. Uh, the next, because it has been announced in the trades. The next one is based extremely loosely on a podcast called um, uh, Firebug. And the podcast is about the greatest serial arsonist in American history Ooh. and the man who pursued him. And the punchline is, is that they were the same guy. <laughs> and um, that uh, is a jumping off point for the show that we're telling, which is just crazy. It's wonderful. And awesome. it's now in the Pacific Northwest, the real events happened in California in the 80s, late 80s. We're set now in the Pacific Northwest, and um, Taron Edgerton is is, is going to come back and star because we Excellent. love working together. And um, we start shooting in Vancouver in the fall. Awesome! Congratulations! Is that going to be for Apple as well? Apple, they're they're my home now. You're awesome! Right. Hey, congrats cool. on that. Thank you. Thanks, Tyler. Um, I don't know if you have anything else that you wanted to ask, but I would like it if you could bring up the right and fast. But you heard uh, Dennis live uh, a few years back, writing fast compared to slow. Yeah, yeah. W back to the when I saw you on the um, World Gone By tour, you had mentioned something about your process at the time and how I think someone in the audience had asked, why didn't you have a book a year like other crime writers? And you made a remark about how how much uh how seriously you took the process and for you it wasn't something that could be churned out once a year do you do you still feel that way is that how you write like do you just take your time and and tell the story that needs to be told yeah i don't i don't think that um 
look, this is, this is about me. I, I always like to be very clear about this. When I say I don't believe in a book a year, because it's not that I don't believe in a book a year for other writers. Mm-hmm. If you can write with quality and produce a book a year, like Pelicanos was doing for quite some time, like Michael Conley does, like James Lee Burke does, then go with God. I can't. Mm-hmm. I'm incapable. Uh, my stuff will come out shallow. It will come out crappy. It'll come out with lines that I'll want back. And I can't do it because I published one of those books and I'm never forgiven myself for it. So it wasn't that it was a bad book. It was a good book, but it wasn't a great book and it could have been a great book. So my thing is some people say, I always have to write 300 words. Great. Graham Greene did did that. He's one of my favorite writers. I can't, I got to sit down and say, did I write? I can write for two hours. And if I walk out of that with three sentences, or if I walk out of that with 10 pages, it's a, it's a win. Mm-hmm. I wrote. And those three sentences, maybe the best three sentences I'll ever write. So they're good. I'm good. good enough. Um, but I do take, I have to take it at that speed because I'm not capable. Mm-hmm. I can write scripts really fast mm-hmm. because what bogs me down a lot as a writer is, is description, is lyricism, is setting this. I like the language to be a certain, mm-hmm. I like it to have a richness to it. That I don't have I don't have to worry about that concern in a script. A script is interior kitchen day. <laughs> on. What is somebody doing? They're moving around the room, they're talking to somebody else. There's a look over here, your camera points to that, you're out. I can so I can write fast in that regard. And mm. when you're writing to production, you're not allowed to be precious. You can't, because you may get a call from production at eight o'clock in the morning that says the set was just destroyed and we're still shooting. So you oh, better shit. you write this scene in the next two hours and get it to me. <laughs> and you're like, okay. All right, we'll do it. Um, Is that common? That's really common. Holy shit. Not the set being destroyed, but the, the last minute you have to re- rewrite an entire scene or you have to rewrite it, who knows what. Um, <laughs> that happens all the time. And uh, we, we're, we're out of money. We're out of money. Or we're out of time. You know that scene you have where they're driving through town? Yeah, we can't drive. Can't drive. That's a two-day <laughs> shot. Oh, my okay, God. Okay, we got one day left. So you might as well make them park park the car somewhere. And then <laughs> suddenly you're dealing with the reason that they parked the car and why they got out of the car and why they're having a conversation there. And it just goes on and on and on. So you can't be precious yeah. about scripts. And that's great. That's fantastic. Because where it all comes together is in the editing anyway. Mm-hmm. And in the who you choose to shoot it and who you choose to direct it and who, how you cast it and the words, you know, Sean Penn said a great line to me once. He said, I never thrust a quotable line. And I thought that's awesome because then that means that it's the, about the line. It's not about the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. I love Sean Penn. That guy's a hell of an actor. Did writing just scripts for a number of years and then show running Blackbird change at all how you wrote small mercies or did you find that that process was similar to how you'd been writing novels before similar to how i've always been there's a yeah. parallel that you in on a secret about that which is i think a lot about you chase it a long time and then when you're in it you're like oh that's what it is what's your narrative voice who's telling this story the the, the narrator yeah. of small mercies is the same narrator as the drop and the same narrator as mystic river it's the same guy and he's mm-hmm. a guy sitting at a bar and he's telling you the story. That's how I see it. Mm-hmm. So 
that voice, which is very street, very city, mm-hmm. very dark, but it's also very funny. Yeah. Uh, uh, that is my favorite voice. It's my favorite voice to work in. And when I catch that voice, which is kind of like it's going past you like a like a bird, <laughs> which I'll get it. The three times I've caught that voice, I have been the happiest because it's the closest I can come to the collective voice of the neighborhood I grew up in. <laughs> that's the voice of my neighborhood. And, and you know, that's... But again, that's not a consideration you have to even think about in a script. Yeah. You know, right, when um, I... When, sorry. Go ahead, Tyler. I, I just, you hit on a point, the collective voice of the neighborhood. After I finished this book, I was, I told my wife, I felt like I was in Southie. Like I had been to these apartments that I could smell them, that I knew what the furniture looked like. And I would search through the book to try and figure out what lines in particular made me feel as though these were places I'd actually been. And I don't think it was anything specific other than the voice of the person telling me the story. Cause I believed he had been there. It's the voice. And it's the, I think there's certain significant details right off the jump in this book. And what I remember from 1974 is as a kid walking into many an apartment that was filled with overflowing ashtrays. Yeah. And, beer. and that's literally how the book starts. She that's right. It. In her apartment, huh? empties the ashtrays and yeah. that was a big thing i remember my brothers doing that when i was a kid watching <laughs> them get up first thing they did dump these huge glass ashtrays into trash cans <laughs> you know um so yeah it's just a it's little details like that can go a long way long yeah way. yeah it's true yeah uh going off that neighborhood voice that you know it's funny because before you brought that up what caught my attention was you saying that you, you know, in novels get sometimes bogged down by uh, scene description. And the first thing that popped to mind, and forgive me, because I don't think I've asked a single question tonight that didn't have the word Kenzie in it somewhere. But when mm-hmm. you read Kenzie's first person voice, the scene descriptions are so part of his character. And I wonder if that's something that flowed out of you or something you really, really had to work at and how that compares to that third person neighborhood voice. I don't know. Patrick's voice is just, man, I love Patrick's voice. It's so fun. It's a, it's a, it's a playful voice, even though he's, it's a lot of dark stuff going on. He's just got this. Mm. I think that is more a nod to the private eye books I read when I was a kid that influenced me. And even this is like the last one I read that I remember being influenced by was Monkey's Raincoat by Bob Crace, his first. And that's Mm. a funny book. And I think that, you know, the Parker books were really funny. And I think that's that's where I was. It allowed me to be, because the fact of the matter is, the thing I hear most when I'm on a tour, most when people meet me, without a doubt, is, oh, you're really funny. Like, we're shocked. <laughs> shocked. And I'm like, I'm not that funny, but you just expect me to be so friggin' dark. You know, um, I seem hilarious to you. But, but it is true that I'm a pretty funny guy, and I come from a place where most people are pretty funny which is Dorchester produces hilarious people. I don't know why. And um, so uh, Patrick has that. And that's the voice I love. And so when he describes things, there is a, you know, what is it? He says in the third book, I'll never forget this line because I was so far ahead of the curve. Nobody was even making Michael Jackson as a pedophile jokes back then. And I said, he's still stuck out like Michael Jackson at a daycare center. Oh my that's, god! That's a yeah. Patrick, you know what yeah. I mean. Uh, so 
or it's more likely you'll see this than you'll see a black guy in a Woody Allen movie. I remember that was one mm. of those. <laughs> so that's, I like that voice. It's fun. It's light, mm. which helps when you're dealing with a lot of darkness. I think we're about to wrap up. So Patrick, if you got one. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to ask one more and then final thoughts, if that's all right. Say yeah. goodnight. Um, just wanted to know, I, I, I love history books, history fiction. Uh, I like to ask authors if they have a hard time, if, if they're conscious about like the reaction of, of modern readers, uh, or if you stay more true to, to the content, like how do you tackle that? Is that even cross your mind or you just focus on the content? I try to, I try to just stay focused on the content. And then again, like with small mercies, I'll work with an editor to kind of hear places where perception could be, oh, this is this this is way too you're going way too far into realism. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I I believe very strongly in that. And um, you know, a book is not a safe space. I don't mm -hmm. care which side of the spectrum you're on. You you the right wing lunatics, the American Taliban down there in Florida who are trying to ban books left and right. Yeah. Because sensibilities are offended. Oh, yeah. go clutch your pearls someplace else, please. And, and I feel the same way on the left. You know, a book is not a safe space. A book is a book. And it is meant yep. to be challenging in some places. And that's why if there's one place where I'm, I'm, I'm a totally woke individual. I was woke before woke ever existed. But when I'm 100% unwoke is I can't believe they're going back into the books of dead people. Oh, and that's fucking bullshit. I Agatha Christie of all people. Agatha Christie, I find it so offensive. If the woman was a racist, let it be read as racist. Let it let you sit there and read it. It's horseshit. You can't change it's, the context of that. You, it's I find it so offensive. Mm -hmm. And um and they're dead. They can't defend themselves. It's censorship, man. This is exactly the type of stuff that the Taliban do, that the Stalinists did. This is whitewashing our literature and our his the history of our literature. This is whitewashing. And it's and it's wrong. It's We're simply historically wrong. Put an editor's note in front of a book. Annotate it. Put asterisks in. Do whatever you need to do, but do not dare go back and rewrite somebody. That that to me is repulsive. That's, so that's something we can all agree on here. Yeah. I guess I must jump. I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah, about yeah no problem. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Dennis. Uh, everybody, thanks, thanks for your listen. time. Uh, you and the Trojan Podcast. Thank you for picking us. If you enjoyed Dennis Lehane's episode, a few that we would like to suggest, guest host Tyler Jones. We had him on quite a bit before today, but his first solo episode is 146. Hell of a guy, super intelligent, very interesting. Then we got episode 159. That's Erica T. Where she is the author, White Horse. Check that out. That's full of crime. It's full of horror. It's very reminiscent of uh, Dennis Lehane's work. And then episode 163, Alma Katsu. She is the author of The Fervor, The Hunger, The Deep. She does historic fiction, in my opinion, like no other. She is just one of the greatest writers that we have today. And of course, episode 196, where Brennan, myself, talk with Don Winslow. And that was an episode that is... Uh, yeah, it was it was really special, just like Peter Straub in, in this one with Dennis Lehane. 
it, they just feel unreal that we recorded those. <laughs> it's we're me and Brennan, uh, Tyler, um, you know, Erica, Robin, our other hosts. We're we're all fans. We're all fans of these people that we get on the show. That's why we talk to them. And sometimes you have people on like Dennis Lane, and it's it kind of feels like a dream. Um, and happy to report to anyone that is listening that's a fan of him, or Don Winslow, or Chuck Polnick, or Peter Strop, or really anyone we've had on. All great experiences. So we hope that we encourage you to check out more of their books. Uh, let us know what you think of the show. And if you want to check out our websites, deadheadspace.com, we got a store, we got reviews. Got a whole lot more there, but you can buy a mug like this for people watching that Headspace mug. Got notebooks, bookmarks, metal bookmarks. I go on myself, use it. Um, T-shirts, a whole lot of other, a whole lot of other merchandise. But uh, just want to thank everybody for checking this one out, and uh, we hope to have another two hundred to deliver to you in the next two to three years. <laughs> Have a good one.